Welcome to Horror Makes Us Happy, the podcast where we ask the question, what is it about horror that makes us happy? Your hosts are Steve Becker and me, Chris Whitman. And you can find out more about us at our website, horrormakesushappy.com. Before we get started, a little information for you and the listeners. This is the uh, uh, point of no return, so to speak, trigger warning. We're going to be talking about horror movies, horror culture, which could involve anything from murder, rape, suicide, F-bombs, all kinds of messed up stuff. So if that's not your cup of tea, go listen to something boring or maybe take a moment to rethink it and, and come back and then listen to us uh, talk about all the fucked up shit like that. I kind of I kind of rolled into the uh, the F-bombs after the disclaimer that that still works, right? Uh, we'll allow it. Yay, great area. <laughs> <laughs> Next up on the lineup is going to be director, editor and cinematographer Ashen Jack, known for uh, such works as Red Room Curse, McLean and... Aka Manto, or is that AKA Manto? Uh, let me go look. What was this? We're on a roll. This is good. Great. We're professionals. <laughs> you know, that's a good question. I'm not sure how that. I mean, it could be. I'm, I I'm said both Aka things. Manto. Could it post? <laughs> yeah, well, whatever. <laughs> but anyway, today we have the pleasure of the company of founding splatterpunk author and author of such works as The Light of the, the, Light of the End. Book of the Dead, Tales of Halloween, and a Creepshow episode, Mr. John Skip. Welcome, John. Hi, how are you? Good, are you? I'm, I'm fine. It's it's called The Light at the End, and you had it right the first the time. Yeah. Sorry. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, is there anything that you want to pitch before we get into the meat of the interview? Huh. Well, um, I have a new book coming out in about four days. It is... Oh. Yeah, uh, the timing is impeccable. Um, it's a book called Don't Push the Button, and uh, it is a collection of short stories, uh, two short screenplays, and a couple of essays about uh, button-pushing culture in our time. And um, um, yeah, it, it's essentially made of triggers. It's not like a – it doesn't come with a trigger warning. It, it is a trigger warning, but it's also probably my most personal work, and it may possibly be the last book that I write. Um, wow. So um, uh, in many ways, it, it functions as a mission statement, and I really love it a lot. And if anybody likes my work, I would highly recommend that they read it. And if they don't know my work, I think it's a swell place to start. Um, mm. and I am also at the very, very end of post-production on a new short film called Doppelbanger. Um, <laughs> this is a true story based on a true story. Um, it is basically a scene from the feature film that I hope to be directing soon. It would be my first feature, um, and my, my first solo feature and, um, emblematic of my turn in these last days of my life towards mostly focusing on movies and music. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I've, I've written and edited so many books that if people want to know what I think in book form, they have plenty of opportunities to do so, but I really, really, really love making movies and want to do more of them before my untimely death, whenever the fuck that is. <laughs> You know, it was funny when you said possibly your last book, I was thinking to myself from someone who sounds as prolific as you've been, that that's a weird thing to say, but then you kind of tied it up with, you know, it, apparently you're now into making movies. So that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I've been making movies 
um, in one form or another for a good chunk of the last 20 years. Much of it was uh, the formative, you know, getting into the culture. I moved to Los Angeles because uh, people wanted to make movies out of my books. And um, Mm, so it's been... It's been a long, long journey, and um, the fact of the matter is, getting to the Hollywood system, I discovered that basically the life of a Hollywood screenwriter is generally sort of like um, the human centipede with none of the dignity, where it's just like oh, one writer. Wait, 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 wait! wait. What a human? What dignity is there in the human centipede? Well, I mean, uh, uh, at, at least when they're jamming your head up another writer's ass so that another writer can have his head jammed up yours, uh, they uh, they remember your name. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe. Um, maybe. <laughs> yeah, your head with ass guy with head up ass guy number number three 40, yeah yeah <laughs> or, or 47 depending if you saw human centipede 2 um which is a sort of a lollapalooza of brain dead uh head up the assery oh, um human centipede one was kind of quaint and lovely uh sort of shot like a european art film and uh was surprisingly demure given its subject matter. And then I got to Human Centipede 2, which is just nasty and black and white, grainy, gross, and it's about this subverbal, homicidal, sweaty, unbathed moron in a parking garage who decides that making a Human Centipede would be a really great idea, except he has no surgical still, so it's all like... It's all like, you know, duct tape and barbed wire and nails and hammers and shit. And, um, and by the end of it, I was like yelling at the screen, what the fuck are you doing? Why are you making me watch this? And when the end of the movie came around, I was like, man, I would just love to hear from the fucking director. Well, he explained to me what the fuck he just did. And then the special features come up and it's like an interview with Tom Mix. And I'm like, well, let's listen to that. And he, <laughs> and he comes on and he's all cheerful and he's wearing a little hat and uh, he could not be happier or less repentant. And he's talking about how excited he was to make this and um, how he can't wait to do three, which is going to make two look like Disneyland. And as he's talking, I'm like, wait a minute. This guy reminds me of young John Waters. He's, he's just committing an art crime to see uh, how many people he can get to look. And he's, he's making famous movie stars out of his friends who would otherwise be completely unnoticed and becoming a mm-hmm. uh, movie star himself. I love this guy. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, then they had a little making of the, the giant climactic uh, sequence with, I think, what, 37 people in a human centipede in an abandoned warehouse. And all the people are there and they're super happy and they, they can't believe how great it is that they're part of this epic achievement. And uh, then they show the line of, of asses prosthetic asses there's like 37 (laughs) prosthetic asses lined up so nobody's actually got their face wedged into anybody else's ass it's all yeah there's no pink eye involved here and well i call bullshit then that's not authentic and just just spurious you know right typical hollywood and at that point i you know, nobody can bury their face in an ass on camera. <laughs> well, anyway, that's a different yeah. part of California. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, and, and certainly a different part of yeah. Hollywood. Um, that too. Um, yeah, I mean, this is all, as off the the Hollywood map as you can get. And I just went, "You outlaw motherfuckers! I love you." And now I love Human Centipede too, and really admire the fact that it got that kind of a rise out of. It. Well, we it will. Uh, I, I made a note to come back to that uh, later in the call. 
Um, okay. <laughs> I think I, I think it's a story worth telling verbatim, just the way we did it organically. You know, in a natural I will way. Keep it in the call. I, I'm just making a note that we'll we can come back to that later. Um, so, okay. The enough. the theme of the interview. Um, I don't know if Garrett had told you uh, for our listeners, um, John. Mr. Skip here is uh, Garrett Cook's uh, roommate, I believe. Uh, we had interviewed him earlier in the call or in the series. Yeah, we, we are housemates. Absolutely. We don't share the same room, but we share the same well, house. Yes, ah. that's what I meant to say. Um, yeah. Uh, so the general theme of the call is uh, we break it into three sections. We uh, we talk. We ask questions based on your childhood, then your teenagers, then your adult mm-hmm. years. And the theory there is that, you know, sometimes talking about it in, in these three different directions triggers memories that you've forgotten. Um, that said, it's not meant mm-hmm. to be a therapy session. So if there's something you don't want to say, just say pass and we'll move on. Um, but starting with childhood, what are some of your earliest memories of scary things? Well, as it turns out, um, I have discussed this before and therefore have my thoughts remarkably well organized. Uh, and I also listened to your um, your Jeff Burke episode, mm. so I kind of um, know your, your format. Okay. It was really fun. I loved it. <laughs> um, and, yeah, Jeff is a buddy. Um, so, okay. When I was very, very small, I'm guessing like two, two and a half years old, I had a fever. And uh, the fever was... Sorry, go ahead. Yes, it did. That's correct. Um, And it was absolutely nightmarish. Um, There were uh, rat things coming down the walls at me, and I was freaked out. My dad had to Jacob's ladder me. Essentially, he had to fill the bathtub with ice cubes and throw me in to break the fever. Mm -hmm. When the rats hit the water, they vanished, and the fever broke, and uh, and I was back. Hmm. But the fact of the matter is, I still carry... uh, ghost memories of this uh, that shudder in my DNA. Mm. Uh, I remember a surprising amount of of early stuff that happened. I remember uh, sticking my hands into a paint can in the garage and blinding myself with paint that they had to get out with uh, <laughs> with, with yeah. I mean, was, I was an idiot. I was you know <laughs> was <laughs> sorry. Go ahead. Oh no no, 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 yeah, no, no, no now I'm <laughs> now I'm all better. Um, <laughs> Now I only put paint in my eyes on Tuesdays. Yes. Well, um, you know, it's important to stick to a schedule on these things. But um, yeah, so I was a fucking moron and um, was. And and so that that was terrifying. But bottom line, uh, coming off of, of that fever, I was scared of everything. I was scared of the dark. I was scared of shadows. I was scared of my own shadow. Um, and I remember in particular one day, uh, watching cartoons and, um, a commercial for Frankenstein came on, which was part of Dr. Cadaverino's creature features in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where I was born. And I freaked the fuck out, uh, at Frankenstein crossing the room towards the nice lady wife, uh, soon to be wife of, uh, soon to be dead ex almost wife of uh, Victor Frankenstein. And um, 
And I ran out of the room and hid under the dining room table, uh, crying for my mother. And then I hear the footsteps coming up the basement steps and uh, reverberating and resounding as I uh, cowered tremulous until my mom came up from the basement, saw me down there and told me I wasn't allowed to watch monster movies. Um, And then, of course, I wanted to watch monster movies. Then we moved to um, Arlington, Virginia, in preparation for my dad um, joining the State Department and moving us to Argentina, Buenos Aires, Argentina. Hmm. Um, In December of 1966, I moved there, and within 10 minutes of uh, being there, saw my first people die as a a bus went off of a uh, bridge ramp sort of a fair I was in the back seat of the uh, car taking us from the airport and so I watched the bus go over the side saw the people's faces pressed against the glass screaming until they hit the ground uh, were uh, buried in a cloud of dust and we kept driving and I'm like holy fuck living in Argentina was very intense because the traffic cops carried submachine guns that's just the traffic cops mm. and yeah. um I went to a little school called uh, uh, Colegio Lincoln, the uh, Lincoln School, which was for American kids of uh, corporate, government, or military uh, service, and then like rich Anglo Argentinos, or you know, like the occasional Brit or something. Uh, surprising amount of Germans in Argentina after World War II for some reason. No. Um, yeah, it's a true story. And uh, I used to have to walk from my house to the train station in San Isidro to take the uh, the train to La Lucila, three train stops away where the school was. And uh, there was a car by this bodega between my house and the school um, that was left by the curb. Evidently, a couple of guys thought it would be a good idea to rob a bank in Buenos Aires, Argentina, where the cops carried submachine guns to direct traffic. And uh, this car had been completely Bonnie and Clyde. It was just like a Swiss cheese husk of blood and uh, and um, um, upholstery. Mm-hmm. And um, they left it there basically like a head on the spike uh, uh, saying, you know, don't try and rob a don't be dumb. don't try and rob a bank or we will kill the fuck out of you and um i also watched um a young shoeshine boy like about 8 years old get beaten to death on a on the train platform by a couple of other um shoeshine boys with his own wooden shoeshine box because he was cute and the americans like to get shoeshines from him and uh so yeah death i saw a lot uh-huh. of death and um, understood that I could die and um, that I did not want to. And um, I also became very enamored with Creepy Magazine and Famous Monsters of Filmland, uh, both of which led me to reading Edgar Allan Poe at a very young age. Although my first literary influence and, and creative influence was Dr. Seuss, um, although most of his stories aren't particularly scary, they are fucking awesome. So yeah, I I um I was into horror real real young, 
And the more I was into it, the more I understood that uh, the less scared I got, the, the, the more I was addressing the fear and addressing the, the damage, which uh, became a major theme of the rest of my life. So that's a uh, that's childhood. Oh, um, that's yeah. That's wow. I mean, like that's, that's a mouthful. <laughs> it's one thing to have influences in horror and horror related things from entertainment or fiction, but yeah, to start off seeing real life beatings that is something else. That, that just sets a high bar. Yeah. Then a little while goes by. Uh, it's my thirteenth birthday. It is nineteen seventy. And um, after school, a friend of mine had a birthday, and this was like the last couple of days before before summer. So I guess it was end of May, beginning of June, and um, birthday party just down like two blocks from the school. So I go to the birthday party, and uh, listening to the music of the day, which was like uh, imported albums of the first Santana album and stuff like that, and the phone rings and it's my dad. My dad never called. And he says, you have to come home right now. And I'm like, we haven't even opened the presents yet. And he says, you have to come home right now. So I'm like, grumble, grumble. See you guys later. Wave goodbye to everybody. Get on the commuter train and go to downtown Buenos Aires because we had moved there in the last year's divorce. Some other shit happened. Um, I get off the the train pulls into the station and people are running and screaming. And I'm like, what the, and I go out Mm. And uh, out on the street, it's not just cops with machine guns. There are full-on armored tanks rolling down the middle of the streets, flanked by uh, cops and soldiers with machine guns. Full-on armored tanks. And everybody's running and screaming. Fortunately, they're all running and screaming in the direction of my apartment. So I'm running with them, and I'm not screaming. I'm going, holy hell, Mm. what is going on? I get to my apartment. I take the elevator up and I open the door and my apartment is empty. It is stripped of furniture. There is not a stick of anything. What? And, I, and I'm like, whoa. And I walk into the living room and um, it's a, like a, a railroad apartment. So it's a big living room and then a long corridor to the kitchen then to bathrooms. And then at the very end of the corridor are the bedrooms. Um, my dad and his uh, new girlfriend and me, we were the only ones left in the family still living in Argentina. Um, I turn the corner, look down the hallway. Everything is gone. There's nothing in the kitchen. There's nothing hanging from the walls. Uh, I see some shadows moving on the far wall and I hear some voices in Spanish and I'm like, (sighs) and then I hear my dad's voice and I go down the corridor and I get to my bedroom and there's one box in the otherwise empty bedroom with uh, a bunch of the latest creepy and eerie magazines. And my dad says, you can take one. So I took the latest issue of eerie magazine. We took the service elevator down the back um, of the building where uh, a sedan with blacked out windows was waiting for us. We got in the car, drove down to La Boca, the mouth of the river, uh, Rio de la Plata, got on a ferry to Uruguay and escaped the country as the tanks surrounded the uh, Casa Rosada, the pink house, which was the president's white house. The president was Onganía, the guy who had deposed Juan Perón earlier. The tanks surrounded him and said, essentially, you have two choices. You can uh, 
give up the presidency, get a helicopter and fly out of here, or we will blow your tits off. You'll be dead and no longer president. And, uh, and that will be that. So he jumped on the helicopter and flew the fuck out of there. And this resulted in the uh, military takeover of Argentina, which resulted in the generalissimo of the month club where, um, one guy would step up and say, I'm the general, and then somebody would shoot him in the back of the head and say, no, I'm the general, and then somebody would step up and shoot that guy in the head and go, no, I'm the general. It's sort of like the human centipede of General Lissimos. And um, I got the fuck out of there. Um, um, many people disappeared and were not found again for another 30 years when they were uh, discovered in a body dump with 30,000 other people. It was a amazing time. I came back to the United States in the middle of the hippie revolution, which I had been waiting for. I could not wait to do drugs and immerse myself in the culture. And uh, at the age of, and um, yeah, having escaped and uh, now living with my mom and one of my sisters um, and uh, um, thus began the next phase of my life, which brings us, I guess, to the teenage years, unless you have other questions about my childhood you would like to ask. Um, well, I have a few. yeah, right. Uh, when I said escape, I meant mentally escaping after all that shit. Um, uh, so you'd mentioned that one. That was just after your 19th birthday. You said, no, no, that was after my, um, uh, I had just turned 13. Oh, 13. Okay. Jeez. Yeah. That is pretty young. All right. Um, well, <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Garrett Cook. <laughs> Where do Damn. we start? Uh, <laughs> um, hmm. I really liked Creepy Magazine. Um, th- those stories were all spooky. Um, and yeah, so also in Argentina, you know, I, I started reading Edgar Allan Poe and went from there to Robert E. Howard, went from there to Ray Bradbury. Uh, I also really loved the Alfred Hitchcock anthologies, which I got in their British editions and the um, Daw and Fontana books of horror stories. And between all these books, I was introduced to Ray Bradbury, Robert Block, Daphne de Moyer, uh, M.R. James, uh, Saki. Hang, hang on, hang on, hang on. I, I actually want to go back a little bit before that. You had mentioned something that was uh, interesting to me, the memory of being under the table and your mom coming up and telling you that you couldn't watch uh, scary movies. That is you correct. You said after that that um, the wording was a little unclear, but it sounded like you were saying to me that immediately after she told you you weren't allowed to, did were you saying that that made you then want to? Um, well, I got sick of being scared of everything. And so I decided to confront my fears. I wouldn't say it was the same week, but um, my timeline is a little fuzzy in the five to six year old range. But um, of course, despite actually remembering some shit from when I was two, um, I realized that they showed scary movies and I became interested in seeing them. And um, they would show Saturday uh, scary movies, there, there would be a, a scary movie on Saturday afternoons, and then they would do the late night creature features. So I started um, enterprisingly checking that shit out. What I realized, mostly thanks to a ghost host named Dr. Cadaverino, was that um, some horror movies were authentically terrifying, and some horror movies were just really stupid and funny. And um, 
And that helped a lot. Understanding that um, being able to laugh at the horror was a really, really essential game changer. And realizing that it could be fun and that um, mm-hmm. uh, that my torment could become a uh, could become an ecstasy. Yeah. And then I became really, really, really fascinated with the dark shit and just, you know, kind of obsessed with the fact that, wow, monsters exist and monsters can be really cool. And also uh, people can be terrifying. And then I moved to Argentina and uh, uh, realized that people can be terrifying. Yeah. Underscored that case. So, um, so yeah, yeah, man, uh, I, I saw a lot of stuff and it became a lifelong thing. And, um, yeah, so I, I love scary stories. That's, that's why horror makes me happy. <laughs> <laughs> Plug. Um, so, okay. So it wasn't that you were necessarily rebelling against your mother's, um, desire to not have you watch those movies. Um, but you mentioned maybe a little later that you got sick of being afraid of them. Was that what you said? I I, I got sick of being afraid of life and, ah. and monster movies were um, um, a self-administered therapy in which I had to confront my demons because I was really, I just didn't want to be a, a little cowering chicken shit, you know? Um, no one does. And, yeah. And uh, it, it appeared that I was on that path, but you know, in retrospect, looking back, it's like uh, horror came for me early and introduced itself to me, and I was incapable of resisting um, the the initial overtures, and then acclimated myself to it. It's like, yeah, if, if you're born in wartime, you better learn how to live through a fucking war, right? Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like you say, it's. Um you can't really necessarily uh, refute some of those early in- influences and experiences, particularly when they're in real life. Yeah. Okay. So you had also mentioned that um, there was something there, uh, you know, somewhere authentically terrifying, but somewhere stupid, you know, funny in a stupid way. Yeah. And that kind of opened a door to help you learn that you could laugh at some of this stuff. Yes. Um, how did that then, cause then the next thing you said after that was that you then got fascinated with the dark stuff. Was that like immediately following? Like, was there some path to go from one to the other? How did, how did being able to laugh at the stuff, um, lead you towards being more fascinated with the darker stuff? Well, I mean, um, the minute it starts being fun, you want to go have more fun, Right. Um, yeah. and I, my other great passion was music. I was super, super into music, still am. Um, mm. and so, yeah, I became the kid who was totally into, uh, monsters and rock bands. Okay. And how were they connected? Um, they were both cool and they, they were both things I wasn't supposed to be into. Okay. Mm. And yeah, I, I was, you know, I was also, uh, my early years, I, I was, um, I was raised to be sort of a Catholic, which meant I went to uh, Catholic school and went to Catholic masses. And um, I finally said to my mom, I think this was in second grade, I said, uh, I don't think I'm going to go to church anymore. Um, <laughs> in second grade. <laughs> uh, I, I, I like the music, but the rest of this is not, uh, I, I don't think I'm going to go anymore. My mom was appalled, but my dad was secretly thrilled because he didn't believe any of this shit. <laughs> and um and um 
That's terrible, son. I'm so, so appalled to hear that. Good. Yeah. <laughs> Come out back and let's have a cigar. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, my dad was a trip. Um, he was, um, my dad was really brilliant, but I, I think very emotionally stunted. My mom was not a genius, but she was very, very, very kind. Okay, so it uh, sounds like your father might have been a little more of the um, the rebellious one of the two, based on some of the stuff that you just said. Often, it's not always the case, but sometimes a child will take after one parent or the other. And, you know, it, it, what you were talking a minute ago about not wanting to go to church and maybe some closeness with your father in that regard. Do you think like you picked up some mischievousness from him or something in that regard or, or not mischievousness, but... I almost want to say rebellion. Yeah, that was what I was like, thinking, were, rebelliousness. Were you relating with your father in that sense of not wanting to listen to your mother? So I was getting most of my cues, honestly, uh, from rock music, cartoons, and um, uh, uh, monster movies. And then, um, you know, when I started reading, reading. And, and, you know, again, my first real influence was Dr. Seuss, who... Um, had iambic pentameter and awesome drawings to steer me into his very provocative thought experiments about nonconformity, uh, like the speeches and uh, 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 resentment of authority, like Yertle the Turtle. And um, so, really, I, I was very self dialing. I'm the only, I, w- I remain to this day the only artistically driven member of my family aside from my daughters. There was some study done that they talk about how babies' brains are wired and that Mm. initially just going off of what I remember from the study, but uh, apparently our our babies' brains are interconnected and and wired in ways that – um, everything is connected and it's over time that gradually certain connections are withdrawn and it's the withdrawing of the connections that sort of then shapes and defines the brain. And this yeah. study suggested that uh, variations in how this occurs or does not occur could explain a lot of different phenomenons, things like um, synesthesia where you get different Colors can be tied to math or sound or uh, tastes sometimes, um, uh, I, but also yes. Go ahead. Go ahead. I, I, I was going to say synesthesia, so I love that you're going there. Mm. Uh, but the other thing, it, in a lighter sense, if you um, pull it back a little further, slightly, you know, less connected than synesthesia, they they were suggesting in this this uh, study that it also somehow kind of explains the ability that some artists have to be able to see connections between things that seem very different, but they're able to find the connection and then express it and say, Hey, see how these things are similar yes. where a lot of other people would completely miss that. Yes. Um, uh, with you a hundred percent on everything you just said. I also wonder how much of it is nature versus nurture though, because sure. in my case, my father, um, it, very interesting guy, uh, weird in some ways, but also interesting, but he's very scientific math background um, Mm -hmm. was an electrical engineer. I think Uh, 
wound up inspecting nuclear boilers for, you know, nuclear plants, wow. but he also plays guitar. Nice. Um, and so, and, and I also have a, a, you know, a pretty strong STEM background, but I also play an instrument. And so yeah. it's interesting having both of those things and, and seeing the connections and things, things like that too. Godel Escher Bach. Um, Do you remember that book? Yes. Yes. Uh, I didn't read it, but I've heard about it and I'm familiar with all the three of the uh, names you just mentioned Mm -hmm. (laughs) as the title. So I I understand the connections between them, but yeah. yeah, And that's also, I think, uh, you know, historically speaking, the way education has been changing over the last hundred years. I mean, part of the reason that we used to have polymaths that we don't have now is because of the way education has changed. Mm-hmm. But back in the day, you know, it was whatever you were interested, go learn it. Yeah. And that, that could be almost anything, whether it's music or science or history or whatnot, what have Absolutely. Um, which incidentally is, I think one of the, the most necessary things for the advancement of, uh, society and science, because typically the things that are huge advances these days are when somebody in one field sees something that somebody else did in a different field and realizes that there's a connection to it. But if you were never introduced to that other topic, how would you know? Mm. Oh, dude, um, you are totally surfing my wave here in terms of interest. Uh, I am with Buckminster Fuller, who I uh, actually got to meet um, on the entire thing of the deliberate generalist. He um, was a scientist and talk about a polymath uh, inventor and so forth. And he said that most of uh, Western society is geared towards specialization. People who know a lot about one thing and almost nothing about anything else. Um, But that what he wanted to be was a deliberate generalist who knew enough about everything that he could talk with anyone and, uh, and glean something from it. And, uh, and those connective tissues were where all the insights came from, the, the surprising connections right. between similarly, seemingly unconnected things. I'm from the uh, Frank Zappa school of uh, educate yourself if you've got any guts. Um, you know, if you mm-hmm. want to learn about stuff, go learn about it. Yeah. Yeah, that was the other thing in Argentina. I had a friend um, named Donald Hunt. Um, whose older brother was going to school in Berkeley, California, and would routinely send him care packages of music. So uh, at the age of like uh, 10, I was listening to Frank Zappa and Jimi Hendrix and Jefferson Airplane and uh, Grateful Dead and um, uh, Janis Joplin, Quicksilver, Messenger Service, and all this trippy shit in addition to the Beatles and Simon and Garfunkel and uh, the, the, nice. the Rolling Stones. Uh, Bob Dylan. And so my brain was super pried open to that shit at a very early age. Um, so I'm, I'm ahead of the curve on this, man. I, I, I got my, as you may have noticed, I have a lot of my answers fairly well developed. You do. Um, I'm trying to dig to the emotional component of it because mm. for me, I think that's really where the heart of it comes from is sure is the emotional component. Um, so fear is scary. It is. It is. And, and then you said that you didn't want to be afraid anymore. And so you were trying to confront your fears. Yeah. Um, and then 
it sounds like it then excited you. So it, it turned from maybe fear to excitement. A cross-pollination thereof. Just because you want to confront your fears doesn't mean that you don't have them. Uh, as a matter of fact, it, you know, in some ways, the more pay attention you pay to it, the more it stokes them. But uh, being able to address them at least gives you a template of, from which to work if work is what you choose to do. When you say cross-pollination, um, between fear and what? Would it be, would you describe it as excitement or some other emotion? Uh, engagement, exploration. Um, uh, yeah, the, the, the thrill of uh, the chase, uh, the chase being uh, possibly attempting sanity. Uh, the, I like where you went with that because actually when you were talking about Dr. Seuss, um, you had mentioned possible uh, anti-authority, but also the word that I wrote down was adventure. You had said something that made me think of the word yeah. adventure. Um, so that kind of ties in with that. Mm, uh, you know, typically one of the questions we ask is whether or not you had experienced anything, you know, terrifying. In your <laughs> life. Uh, I, I think we covered did. that part. <laughs> <laughs> we covered that. A little bit. Um, what we had not covered is whether or not that did it, did it introduce any lasting fears or any, you know, maybe not fear, but, you know, change of behaviors. I can't think of the right word now. Yeah. Change of behavior. Well, let's just say that, um, my childhood was laced with cautionary experience. Um, you were no longer inspired to be a shoe shine boy for some reason. For some weird reason, yeah. <laughs> that kid was really cute and really nice, and his brains looked just tragic on the on the fucking pavement. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I was like ten. Um, so okay, so yeah, uh, okay, so cautionary, very. Good reason for that. Um, cautionary how? Well, I, again, you know, I realized I was mortal, uh, that I could die at any second, and and so could anybody else. Um, that, that's a lot to swallow when you're a kid. It's a lot to swallow ever at all, but it's fucking true. Um, but no habitual behaviors like, you know, checking over your shoulder. Every oh, I, I was still scared of the shadows. I mean, uh, I, I that's the thing. It wasn't just like there might be something scary under the bed that I don't understand from another dimension or, you know, ghosts or something. It was also like somebody could uh, in Argentina. A lot of my friends took their privilege for granted. And I was like, I, I, I was I was fascinated by injustice. I was fascinated by the fact that um, a lot of the people around me would never have a fraction of what I had. And I was just living a basic middle-class American lifestyle, which in Argentina translated to, you know, a lot closer to royalty. And I did go to like embassy functions and I did see how the rich interacted and, you know, uh, guys uh, with uniforms, with uh, epaulets and and medals and shit, um, I, I was very keenly aware of class um, division. I have always rooted for the underdog, and basically, by virtue of being a weirdo, kind of positioned myself as such. I also started smoking and drinking when I was uh, like nine or ten. This is fine. Yeah. Mm. Did you have anybody, um, whether it was friends or family or anything like that, who um, were also into horror at the time? I had a couple of friends who would read my creepy comics, but um, nobody who was into it as much as I was uh, as a kid. Um, uh, my friend Don Hunt and I really connected on the music. Okay. Um, 
for Chris's uh, benefit, I'll ask, did Don have a brother, Michael? <laughs> you are not going to get me to say cunt on this broadcast. Ah, uh, yeah. You know, I was, I was going to ask, but I, I let it go. I'm not saying it. I'm not saying it, man. <laughs> <laughs> I, I knew Wait, you were what, thinking. What are you not say, John? <laughs> I, I'm not saying cunt. Uh, oh, okay, I will also not say cunt. Okay, thank you. Wow, <laughs> good. Me either. <laughs> um, all right, teenage years. <laughs> what, what have you got for us in teenage years? Um, well, let's start with Jimi Hendrix's guitar playing. Um, okay, sure, it's a good um, start. Because he was like. He's still my favorite guitarist of all time. Just mm-hmm. the way that he broke the rules and uh, turned uh, six strings and a chunk of wood into a sonic soundscape uh, that had not existed before. Just the way he broke through all the barriers. And um, yeah, basically, he psychedelicized the soundscape in ways that uh, um, everybody was scrambling to catch up with. Um I got back to the States just in time for him to die. Mm. Um, my mom was having a hard time understanding why I was locked in um, uh, my bedroom with the new little stereo system that uh, she had gotten me, just a little turntable, um, just listening to Jimi Hendrix albums over and over and uh, and crying and crying and crying. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I came back to the States – Landed in Arlington, Virginia, right around the corner from Washington, D.C., and immediately uh, threw myself into the anti-war protests and uh, started smoking pot as fast as I could get my hands on it. Um, dropped my first hit of acid when I was 14. Yeah, I was just going to say, I thought you were 14 when you got back. Uh, I was 13 when I got back. Uh, and so it took me almost a year uh before I got my hands on a hit of acid, but I was living in Arlington, Virginia in 1970, 71 and uh, drugs were cheap and plentiful. And it was not hard for uh, even like junior high school kids to get their hands on shit. And I was going to say, it might not have even been illegal at that point. Oh, it was illegal. It was definitely illegal, but that didn't stop us. I mean, that was part of the, part of the thrill, you know, it was like, if I may inquire, what was the most you took at one time? Oh, um, I, I was not um, one of those guys. I, I have a great respect for the terrifying power of LSD. Okay. So I was not somebody not like, I'm going to do a 10 strip tonight. No, 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 no. Um, you also got to realize he, the things that he had experienced in real life, you know, if you're going to have a bad trip, the difference between his bad trip versus your bad no. trip might, yeah. might be considerable. You know yeah. And, and I did have some bad trips and they were absolutely terrifying but um but again it's like um there was stuff there i wanted to know and i needed to know it so i was going to go back in yeah there there is as much there for me there was more healing than trauma on the psychedelic path mm-hmm. but there was lots of both because that's what life is made of it's true um so was there still horror in your life in your teenage years or did you kind of divert from that into music and then come back to it into later years or how'd that work um, out? <clears throat> yeah, I would say that that's really accurate. I mean, when I got back to the States, horror comics were not as good. They, uh, the, the, the Warren, um, uh, creepies and Eries and Vampirellas, uh, 
had made a transition. They were not nearly as interesting to me as the underground comics that were coming out, which would be like Arkham's Zap comics. And then on the horror tip, Skull Comics and Slow Death Comics, which were both published by uh, Last Gasp Eco Funnies. And this was this was horror with all the fucking filters off, uh, the full-blown brain-spattering, uh, giant boner-fucking mayhem. And um, <clears throat> I loved that shit. And then um, my friend Ralph Saunders, who, who shared my enthusiasm for uh, – for comics said, I just saw this movie. You got to see it. It's called night of the living dead. They actually eat people (laughs) on screen. No way. I'm like, well, I'm going to have to go and see that. (laughs) So, um, I got my mom's boyfriend to drop me off at a theater for a double feature of let's scare Jessica to death and night of the living dead. Nice. And, and let's scare Jessica to death was nice hippie horror. Um, a variety that I remain fond of to this day. But then Night of the Living Dead came on and mother fuck, what is this movie? Um, <laughs> to add extra zing to the equation, right at the point where the hand comes through the boarded up window and grabs the young guy by the arm, mm-hmm. I had my first LSD flashback. Ooh. And so I felt like I was watching a documentary about what was really going on. So Romero and the zombies really imprinted hard on my central nervous system and uh, became uh, a very strong thematic motif in the, uh, in the tapestry of my life from that point forward. So uh, those were all very important. And in terms of my reading along with the underground comics, it really started going more towards science fiction uh, because that's where the ideas were and the the new wave of, of science fiction uh, was really happening with people like uh, Harlan Ellison, who interestingly crossed the line between horror and science fiction with stories mm-hmm. like I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but I was also reading like um, on my 18th birthday, somebody gave me a copy of Grendel, uh, by a novel, oh. by, a short novel by John Gardner, which was the Beowulf legend from the monster's point of view. Mm-hmm. And, and I read that thing and I went, that's me. What do you mean? I, I'm, I'm the monster forever outcast from society uh, that wants to belong and wants to be loved, but will never be let in um, and will never be understood because where I come from, my mother eats uh, the bones of your babies. Um, yeah, what I really wanted to be was like a, a John Lennon, Frank Zappa, Gene Splice baby where I could write popular songs about how everything was fucked up and we needed to wake up. Mm-hmm. Mm. I was a very so I was a self righteous little prick. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all are at a certain age. I'm, yeah, yeah. Hmm. <laughs> 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 I, you know, it's funny when you brought up uh, uh, Grendel. Um, yes, I thought you were going to go in a different direction with that, but uh, it makes sense that you didn't because that was actually a couple years later. But um, you thought he I, was going to talk about the comic, didn't you? Yes. <laughs> so you see, say Grendel, I went, woo. Um, there's a, a comic book that started in the 80s and then went into yes. the 90s um, by uh, Matt Wagner, um, who had a character also named Grendel. That, um, right. it, are you familiar with it at all? I'm aware that it existed. I never actually read one. Okay. It's a fairly long story because I think um, 
I, I just won't go into it because it'll take up too much time. But I no, fair I enough. Loved it. Um, and so when you, I when I thought you were going to go there, I got kind of happy because I've been saying for decades now that there needs to be a movie about this uh, particular story. But um, mm. particularly now after Game of Thrones and and the, the dark success of the Dark Knight, um, right. uh, this has been a long, a long, long road in terms of uh, what door opened when for yeah. who. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, um, you may want me to save this for, for later in the talk, but um, the shit that was absolutely taboo is mainstream now. Yeah. 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 The headline on the back cover of my book, Don't Push the Button, is Love is the Only Shocking Act Left. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So okay. if there's a full circle, that's my my contribution to it, which is actually a line I pilfered from um, the comedian Sandra Bernhardt. Because um, mm. I just thought uh, w- when I heard her say it, I was like, "That is fucking amazing." It is. Love ain't just sex misspelled. Uh, to paraphrase Par- Harlan Nelson's book, uh, "Love ain't nothing but sex misspelled." The the bottom line is, if you know what the human species is capable and, and of, and you know what life can throw at you, you know that we all contain seeds of monstrousness and and awfulness inside us. Um, and to know to see. To see the human race fully and clearly and still be able to love is a monumental leap, but it is a glorious one. It is a redemptive one. It is the only thing that can possibly save us. Are you familiar um, with Joseph Campbell? Um, I saw Joseph Campbell, Jane Halifax, and Robert Bly speak at the nice. World Symposium on Humanity in 1977 in Toronto, uh, the same uh, weekend I met Bunk- Buckminster Fuller and got stoned with Stephen Hawking. <laughs> yes, I am familiar with, I am familiar with Joseph Campbell. Yeah, yes. everything except for that last one. <laughs> Wait a that, minute. That's interesting. Okay. Well, he's no yeah, longer allowed yeah. to uh, confirm or deny that, so you're safe. <laughs> uh, he loved the it. weed, dude. He loved the weed. Um, I, I'm I'm walking around the the World Symposium on Humanity, and there are all these like major figures and all these swamis and gurus and so forth. And uh, there's this guy being wheeled around in a wheelchair by a young Asian man. Um, and he's sort of like slumped to the side and his lips are hanging like, right. uh, like drool's going to come off of him and stuff. And uh, I'm talking to this guy named Mark Satin, who wrote a book called New Age Politics, which I thought was very brilliant. And, um, and I said, who is that guy who is being treated with so much deference and respect? Mm-hmm. And, and Mark says, he's one of like three to five greatest minds on the planet. So um, then I wound up in this uh, You're like, okay, I got to talk to that person. Yeah, uh, I wind up in this dorm um, with about 10 other people, and we're passing joints around, we're getting stoned, and um, someone would pass the joint to the young Asian man, he would take a hit, and then he would hold it to Stephen's mouth, and Stephen would take a hit, and then the Asian gentleman would hand it to the next person. And uh, we smoked probably about five joints in sequence, and uh, he had a very happy smile on his face. <laughs> um, I don't think I will be able to blink for the next 48 hours. I, I mean, I thought this was a riff at first. You're saying this is not a joke. You you actually smoked weed with Stephen Hawking. Well, that it, is correct. I mean, think about Hawking. what time it was. It makes sense. Holy shit. And yeah, it does. But still, just, I mean, that in retrospect is is epic. Congratulations had, to you, sir. That is a moment. <laughs> I've, had, I've had a really interesting life. Yeah. Um, you could say yeah, that. Yeah, and, and that, that was awesome. Um, a very interesting life. 
to go but, back to uh, the Joseph Campbell thing for a second, yeah. the reason that I, I went there was because you were talking about, you know, to be able to look at all of human reality and still love and love it is sort of a challenge. And that's one of the things that, you know, I got from professor Campbell's works. And I think even in one of his interviews, he saw, talks about, you know, it's uh, life is a terrible opera. Um, it's beautiful. It's, but it's terrible. It's, you got to take one with the both. And, you know, if you can't do that, then you're not affirming life. You're, you know, you're, that is affirmation of life. If you can't, if you say, I only want the good and I can't take the bad, then you're not affirming life. Right? Absolutely. You're, you're engaged in, you're engaged in a one-sided pantomime. Yeah. Um, and yeah, no, it's hard to argue with that shit. That's, that's pretty clear. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people do. Yeah, yeah. They try to. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's cover some of the uh, other teenage questions real quickly. Um, dress up for Halloween. Now that you're back in the United States. Oh, fuck. Yeah. Favorite costume. Zombie. Okay. Of course. Should, I should have expected that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, Least favorite costume? Um I really, really never uh I, I didn't I didn't wear the sexy nun well. <laughs> <laughs> but you wore it, is what you're saying. You know, actually, uh I as a younger man I did pretty damn good drag. I looked pretty good. Um but but I never did the sexy nun. I, it, w- it would be more like uh, biker jacket, long blonde uh, hair, and uh, um, shit like that. Black black lipstick. Uh, yeah, I, I, I was I, I was that kind of chick on Halloween. If I dressed up as a chick for Halloween, um, <laughs> but I still doesn't sound. It was like does still doesn't sound like it was your least favorite costume. Oh, least favorite costume. Um, I don't know. Certified public accountant. Um, <laughs> your your dad would have taken offense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he also wouldn't have been at the party. Well, that's true too. Did the costume um, come with a notary seal? Yeah. You, you know what? He could give you one. You know, my my favorite costume I ever saw um, was a guy who had a a low rent Barney the dinosaur costume. This was not in my teen years, but like a really shabby uh, fifth rate. Uh, uh, Barney the dinosaur costume, and he had one of those little name tags on the chest that said, "Hello, my name is Barry." <laughs> <laughs> he's like Not Barney. Barry. He's like Barney's, you know, low rent trailer park cousin or something. Yeah. Yeah. Fucking like, hilarious, uh, Barney. You would see on uh, fucking Times Square. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's the Bar- It's the Barney that you rent for your child. <laughs> kids, uh, my name is Barry. <laughs> it was so good so so then i started uh, uh doing a costume like in, in my uh, late 30s early 40s no it was in my 40s um where i i had this sort of like uh space age bachelor pad swinging uh fire uh it was like a hawaiian shirt except it was all like uh flames and then i would have little horns on and then i had a name tag that said hello my name is stan so it was like I was Satan, but I spelled my name wrong. Um, I love it. That's, uh, I might, I might do that one year. It's pretty funny. It's pretty funny. Uh, anything terrifying happened to you as a teen? Oh my god, yes. Being tear gassed was was mm. a trip. Um, yep. Bad acid trip. Absolutely terrifying. There was one time I went um, 
to visit a friend of mine, actually a friend who had also escaped from Argentina, but later uh, we reconnected. Uh, he was living in Maryland. I was living in uh, York, Pennsylvania at this point. My mom had gotten together with her boyfriend and moved us to York, Pennsylvania. I got an invitation from my friend. His parents were out of town. I took a bus down to see him in Maryland, and I brought this really great blotter acid. So we're tripping. We're starting to get off, and um, there's a knock on the door, and it's his friend Russell. His friend Russell, the first truly gay kid I had ever realized was gay. And um, he had just run away from his, uh, from his house. He had just run away from home. His dad made Archie Bunker look like Norman Lear in terms of uh, um, arch conservatism. Russ ran away from home. And because we were stupid and 16, we gave him a hit of the acid. Uh-oh. And uh, about an hour later, as I'm really fucking high and he's just starting to come on, there's a knock on the door and the knock reverberated like icy thunder and went into my bones. <laughs> I just got this horrible chill running through me. My friend goes downstairs. It is, of course, Russ's parents. They have come to take him away. I never saw Russ again. Um, but from that moment on, the chill had gotten into my bones and everything was scary and everything hurt. And I was like, fuck, I got to get out of the house. I got to get out of the house. I got to get out of the house. So I tell my friend, I got to go take a walk. And he's like, why, man? I'm, you know, I'm, I'm tripping. This is great. So I had to like argue with my friend to go out of the house. So we start walking down the street and I can't see the street in front of me. Um, and then I got this insight and I just said, you know what I really need to do? I need to watch some television. So I tell my friend, I need to go in and watch some television. He's like, Jesus, fuck, man. You just taught me into going out and taking a walk and now I'm digging the walk. You are completely ruining my trip. And I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. So finally... I managed to wheedle him into uh, going back inside. He had a little black and white TV. Um, I turned on this little TV and I watched two hours of uh, Perry Mason and Alfred Hitchcock presents, which was mostly men in suits talking at each other in a sort of a 1950s, early 60s style. And that got me through the worst of the trip. And after the couple hours of watching that shit, I was able to, Back off a little bit. Yeah, I, I was able to rejoin life as as less than a, a squalling creature of fear and pain. Um, and I could talk with uh, my friend. And I wound up writing a song. Um, and probably about 6 o'clock in the morning, finally fell asleep. At 8 o'clock, I woke up. I was still tripping. Wow. Mm-hmm. And it was the day that I was supposed to take the bus back. To Pennsylvania, so I took the bus back, got back to Pennsylvania about eight hours later. I was still tripping. The next day, I was still tripping. A week later, I was still tripping. Jesus, what? A month later, the hallucinations had pretty much receded, but I could still see the um, the letters on my hands, and I still saw vivid trails. That was, I was 16 years old. I am now 64 years old. I still see the trails. Um, 
like a circuit breaker flipped in my head and I was uh, pretty much psychedelicized for life and had to roll with that. Mm -hmm. And so I have, Um, but that was scary. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a word for it. Uh, So what kind of changes in your behavior has this Um, uh, triggered? Well, you know, it, it, it sort of reinforced where I had been going already, which was uh, embracing that sort of um, where where Eastern mysticism and quantum mechanics meet and um, all of creation is the universe vibrating at different frequencies, the speed by which determines uh, whether uh, it's me or the chair I'm sitting on or the window or the world outside, um, that this is all one thing happening at once forever and that creation is a uh, push me pull you device that keeps itself in perpetual motion through dynamic opposition and uh, Mm -hmm. that um, light and dark are uh, forever and juxtaposed and forming a whole like a Taoist um, yin yang symbol in which uh, uh, it is half light and half dark with the seed of the other. So if it ever gets too light, the darkness will grow. And if it ever gets too dark, the light will grow so that eventually balance will be restored. And I am but a manifestation of infinity um, who will live as long as I do. And then I'll turn into energy and something else will happen. Shit like that. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it sounds like as a result of this uh, month long trip, at, at least uh, you learned something. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, now here's, and now here's Bob with sports. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so in this case, it more of a positive outcome. I would say yes. I would say yes. It's good. It's good. Um, (laughs) and then I moved to New York city in my early twenties, uh, and became a street messenger and wrote a punk rock, uh, horror novel that put me on the New York times bestseller list, but that's, we're slightly getting ahead of the game. No, I was actually looking at the list of questions there and thinking we should probably go into adulthood because I think we pretty much covered everything in the teen years. Uh, so you said you moved to New York in this one in your twenties. Yeah, I moved from um, I moved from York, Pennsylvania, to New York City in 1981. I had a uh, a wonderful girlfriend named Leslie Sternberg, who uh, was an underground cartoonist, a wild redhead, super brilliant. Um, she said to me, "I'm moving to New York City." I started writing. Uh, I, I wrote a couple of novels uh, at the end of my teens, and they were really weird. Um, and and uh, they were aiming towards world change again. You know, towards uh, how are we going to transform the world? How are we going to fight against the madness within ourselves? Which I was convinced was the real war, which was the name of this book I was writing. And uh, in it, there's a scene, and uh, Leslie read this scene, and she's like, "Have you ever read Stephen King?" And I said, no, he's, he's like a best-selling author, right? I'm assuming he's like, he sucks. And she's like, <laughs> he's like, no, you write a lot like him, and I think you'd really like him. So um, I picked up The Stand, and I read it, and I was like, holy fuck. This guy sold 5 million copies of this thing? This is insane. This book is great for starters, and it's totally rock and roll. Jesus Christ, this is amazing. So shortly, it's right up my alley. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, it, it, and um, you know, again, you know, my Harlan Ellison gland uh, uh, ignited uh, reading Stephen King. As it turns out, King was a big 
Harlem fan as well. And then she said, I'm moving to New York City um, because I'm going to make something out of my life and I'm not going to be trapped in this little town. Um, if you stay here, you're going to keep beating your head against a wall that will never give and nothing will ever happen for you. And when I come back to visit my family, I won't want to see you because you will be fucking pathetic. Hmm. And I said, love you too. Right. Well, (laughs) well, when you put it that way, and actually we had, we had recently broken up, but she was still like, you need to go to New York city. I'm going, you want to go. So Hmm. I and a, a little children's brigade, uh, uh, five of us moved up to New York and we got a, a one room apartment, an efficiency apartment that we all shared, uh, you know, sleeping in various corners of the room. And uh, when Twilight Zone magazine began, I was still in York, Pennsylvania. And in the first issue, they had a writing contest, story contest. And the judges were a Carol Serling, Rod's widow, and Stephen King, Harlan Ellison, Peter Straub, and a couple other people. And I'm like, motherfuck, I want to get in that. I I had written a story for my mom, a Christmas story uh, called Christmas for for Jackie. And I really liked it a lot. And I went, hey, if I introduce a a ghost into this story, then maybe it will fly at Twilight Zone. So I rewrote it and put a ghost in it. So I sent the story to Twilight Zone. And the editor, Ted Klein, wrote back and said, this is a wonderful story, but the ghost element seems a little tacked on. And I'm like, that, that dude, that dude knows his shit. Um, um, but he said, you know, um, if you write something else, you're not going to win this contest, but if you write something else, I'd like to see it. So I wrote the long ride. I'm moving on 37th street. Turns out that, um, Twilight Zones magazine's office was right down on Lexington Avenue and like 41st or something. So just like blocks away. I typed up the story put it in an envelope, walked down to um, the offices of Twilight Zone, took the elevator up and walked into the reception office. And the receptionist says, can I help you? And I said, yeah, I wrote a story for Ted Klein. I'd like to give it to him. And she's like, what? But they let me in and I went and met Ted Klein and handed him the story directly and talked with him for about 20 minutes. He was very nice um, and kind of incredulous that a writer had the balls to walk into his fucking office and hand <laughs> yeah. him a story. Sometimes it pays um, off, you know? Yeah. I, I was just like, I want to meet this guy. So I went in and I met him and um, he bought the story. And suddenly I was a published author nice. and um, yeah, and I'm a messenger. I've got like hair down to my shoulders. I'm wearing an army jacket and uh, biker boots and everything. I was, you know, that's kind of a freak, but I was memorizing the city. I'd just be walking from building to building, delivering shit, smoking joints and, and memorizing the city. Then my fr- old friend, Craig Spector, who I met when we both, I got, I dropped out of high school and he got kicked out of high school. We wound up in this little school and became friends and were in rock bands together. And he calls me up from Boston where he's going to the Berkeley college of music, uh, studying guitar and he says, I got this idea for this vampire story about this punk vampire, and you should write it, and we'll split the money, and you can sell it to Twilight Zone. And I'm like, okay. yeah, yeah, I got, I got this other stuff I'm doing. That's a nice idea and everything. But then he came down to New York, and we spent a long weekend getting high and drinking beers and talking. And I realized that this wasn't a short story. It was a novel. Mm. Spent the next two years writing this novel called The Light at the End. And I wrote the book but I handed him all the pages and we jammed story and he had tons of, of ideas and it was a really fun collaboration. 
finished the book and started taking it out, everybody rejected it. I, I just mountains of, of rejection letters. And then Ted Klein, the editor of Twilight Zone magazine, sold his first novel, The Ceremonies, to Bantam Books for $100,000. And I'm like, well, shit. They like Ted. Ted likes me. Maybe they'll like me. So I asked Ted for a letter of recommendation. He wrote a letter that said, I commend to your attention the work of John Skip, a young writer of unusual talent. I have uh, published several of his stories in Twilight Zone and look forward to seeing more. So I wrote a one-page query letter about um, a vampire hunts the streets and subways of New York City uh, in The Light at the End, a novel by John Skip and Craig Spector, weighing it at 65,000 words or whatever. It, it chronicles eight days of terror that culminate on board a, ste- a speeding subway train. And I in- introduced the vampire and I introduced his main uh, antagonist, otherwise known as the protagonist. And then I said, uh, the manuscript is finished uh, um, and available upon request. So I took that. I wrote the letter, handed it to Craig. He messengered it into 666 Fifth Avenue, where Bantam Books was. Nice. And uh, the receptionist says, is Mr. Ronick expecting this? And Craig says, I don't know. Sign here. And had her sign the messenger manifest. So it was all like professional and not at all like like the writer was sneaking it in. Mm. Turns out Lou had a lunch meeting with a, an author at a restaurant. Um, so he walks out to get his meeting. The receptionist says, this just came for you. He says, what is it? She says, I don't know. So he takes it with him, goes to lunch. The author doesn't show up. So he has basically nothing to do but read the menu and, and the mm-hmm. letter, mm-hmm. came back, called me, and said, I want to see the book. Yeah. Long story slightly shortened. We sold the <laughs> continue. Good. We we sold the book. Book came out in eighty four. Was optioned for film before it was released in January of eighty six, where it went on to sell a million copies. And all of a sudden, I wasn't a poor street messenger. I was a New York Times bestselling novelist. Nice. Um, and um, that changed my life. Yeah, I can and, imagine. Yeah. We were the splatterpunks, and we annoyed a lot of the the elder writers. But uh, along with Dave Scow, Joe Lansdale, and Clive Barker, um, we sort of helped revolutionize the horror field at the time, and uh, that was really fun. All interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious about uh, what you consumed in that in those years that you were a fan of, though. Just before I moved to um, New York City. American Werewolf in London had just came, come out. So I watched that uh, in a theater in York, Pennsylvania, and just loved it. It was the greatest thing. But then I watched it in New York City with a fucking New York City audience. Uh, everybody was really responding to the movie. You know, when something scary would happen, they'd all be like, no, don't, don't go in there. And if uh, if uh, David Naughton and Jennifer um, J- Jenny Agater were fucking, it would be like, ooh, yeah, baby. And uh, <laughs> and then, you know, uh, monster shit ha- would happen and we'd all be like, no, uh, again. So that was, you know, the shit. And I would go see like double bills like uh, Chud and Children of the Corn, mm. you know, Basket Case and all this crazy stuff. And then um, VHS started to happen. The first movies I bought, I think, were Repo Man and... Uh, uh, the dead zone. And yeah, in terms of the fiction that was happening, I, I 
got to meet everybody, you know, in the horror scene. And just as we were wrapping uh, uh, final edits and, and rewrites on The Light at the End, uh, Lou Aronica hands me this copy of Red Dragon, which they were just putting out in paperback. And he said, check this out. And I was like, oh, my fucking God. I, I had to devour that novel fast so I could get back to my rewrites because once I started reading it, I could not put it down. Um, mm. And yeah, I mean, um, this was where the old horror and the new horror were totally colliding. Okay. So yeah, a lot of the quiet horror people were not fans of what we were doing. What do you mean? Let, let's say that the, um, that much of the conventional horror that was being published at the time that we came out Aside from Stephen King and, and Peter Strom, a lot of it was written by um, college professors with suit jackets with little leather patches on the elbows and stuff. And it was a lot more genteel and the horror was more suggested. And we were more like, fuck that. Um, it was more graphic violence, graphic sex, more fucking with the lights on and a lot more confrontational political uh, uh, satire and social criticism. And it happens to poor people too. Mm -hmm. And it happens to poor people too. Thank you very much. A lot of working class shit. Um, Yeah. Light at the end was the the heroes of the light at the end were street messengers. You know, they they knew every speck of the city and they knew the subways and, uh, and nobody gave a shit about them, but people were dying around them and they were like, no, this has to stop. And so they took it on themselves. So there was that vigilante element. Yeah, it it was, it was tough stuff and it was breaking all of the rules. And at the same time, uh, Joe Lansdale was writing his crazy shit in Texas. Dave Scow was writing his crazy shit in LA and Clive Barker was writing the books of blood in uh, London. So um, it was sort of like, uh, a spontaneous eruption in the arts. We didn't like mm-hmm. consult with each other first, but we all looked around and went, wow, you're doing this too. So, so we were juvenile and amateur and uh, um, had no respect. And I'm like, dude, I grew up on uh, MR James and uh, Sheridan Lafanu and uh, Ambrose Bierce and everything too. I'm just not going to be a pussy about it. Mm-hmm. So altercations ensued. <laughs> but mostly I loved those guys and it just pissed me off that they were trying to be my surrogate dad and tell me to behave. Cause like I didn't come to this party to fucking behave. You know, I can't, I came to this party to party. You, uh, you raise an interesting point that could be the topic of its own, uh, podcast or series of podcasts, but uh-huh. you know, horror of the upper class versus horror of the lower class. Thank you. Um, that's that we'll leave, we'll put that to the side uh, <laughs> and just focus on your interests uh or you know as a horror fan um yeah because otherwise this could like i say go into a whole realm whole other realm um we'll start a whole new show yeah uh you mentioned a number of different things here um dead zone red dragon repo man a couple different things here uh but you also mentioned that there was some sort of synergy with the uh horror of your younger days what what would you say would be the synergies oh i mean i, I um a, a strong anti-authoritarian streak and a and a vast impatience with bullshit with with the lies that the culture tells itself to get through its day with a with a happy face sticker plastered on it mm-hmm. um was there anything that happened in your adult life that actually scared you? Um, yeah, sure. Um, 
going to Hollywood because Hollywood was very interested in making movies out of art stuff uh, and slamming against the brick wall uh, that was Hollywood in which what was the line uh, you can be murdered with enthusiasm, which is to say that they would gush at you and gush at you and tell you the greatest thing and, and then uh, yank the golden carrot away and leave you broken uh, while they took whatever they could get from your carcass and left you uh, left you for the dogs. Mm. Um yeah, that was where I learned, particularly on the experience of writing Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child, that if I wanted to work in film, I had better become an actual filmmaker. I better learn how to produce and direct and do all those other things, because otherwise I would rather kill myself. <laughs> and yeah. um, and a really key thing that I want to bring up, and that I also mention in, uh, in the new book, Don't Push the Button, in an essay at the end called uh, uh, Happiness Tip for the profoundly haunted i i talked about the day i was listening to kcrw and um the host of the the show chris doritas was interviewing bjork who was an artist i was hugely in love with mm. and she was talking about a lot of things and they were playing the music and at a certain point she said this thing that sort of changed my life she said you know happiness too is possible and if people spend as much time on learning how to be happy as they do with their jobs or their careers or their relationships or their favorite sports clubs, they might get pretty good at it. Mm-hmm. It's like a skill. And as a guy, yes. Mm-hmm. And as a guy who um, was just, my music broke back through for me at that time because I would be laying there in a fetal ball on the, on the floor. I'm not lying. And I'd be drunk and I'd be broken, I'd be screaming, I'd be making these horrible, horrible sounds, amazing sounds. And part of me was like, oh God, I want to die, I want to die, I want to die, I want to die. And part of me was like, but did you hear that note you just hit? That was fucking nuts. Mm-hmm. That was crazy what you just as as I cracked open all of these sounds came pouring out of me. I wound up in a band with Chris Poland from Megadeth and uh his brother Mark and uh, on drums and a guy named Dave Randy and uh, was able, this band saved my life because I was able to pour all of my fucking demons and all of my pain into the music. And that totally saved my life. We never got a music deal, but um, I got to play with these incredible virtuoso musicians and we wrote 50 songs together, released two records that nobody's ever heard. Um, In the process, I was studying film. Then my life went into the next chapters. Mm. I um I can relate. Um, I'll make it short. The when I was in my teens, I, I did attempt suicide. Obviously, didn't succeed. And yeah, one of the things that I got out of that um, it was essentially, if I boil it down, is if I don't have one big thing to laugh at, then I'm going to find all the little things that I can, and I'm going to laugh at all of those. Beautiful. I love that. You know, that yeah. kind of ties in with you were saying about, you know, Bjork learning to be happy is I, I had to learn, uh, okay, I'm not going to get this big thing, but I got to take all the little things. Absolutely. Um, and and cultivate, a, cultivate a capacity for happiness so that you can actually recognize it when it comes. Yes. Let's jump to, I'm going to skip some of the other questions we normally ask, uh, just re- repetitive stuff. I want to ask two questions that they could be the same answer or could be different answers. Sure. Um, so I'll ask both at the same time. Okay. Um, now, typically we ask, what is your favorite movie and what movie have you watched more times than any other? Mm-hmm. Because you're so much of a literary person, I would also accept books. Yeah. Um, 
I don't have a favorite because I have so many favorites. You know, um, it's like, what is the best um, movie or the best book? Let me put it to you this way. Okay. Um, I understand that the answer can change over time and in different reasons for different genres. It's a, it's a, it's a target in motion. Sure. But if I were to hold your feet to the fire right now and just say the first thing off the top of your head, what would it be? Oh, uh, which one of uh, favorite movie or favorite book? Yes. <laughs> my favorite movie probably is Amelie. Mm. My favorite book is probably, I'm going to say the book on the taboo against knowing who you are by Alan Watts who was uh, a hippie philosopher of the 60s and 70s and so forth. Loves me some Alan Watts. I am familiar with his work. Yeah. I, I suspect I understand the reasons for both of those, but I, I want to hear you say it. Why, why would you pick those two? Well, Amelie is just this delicious story about savoring the tiny pe- details of life mm-hmm. um, and loving life uh, by virtue of loving people uh, for their flaws and all. And then my third favorite movie, I don't know, might be Day of the Dead or Carpenter's The Thing or something for opposite reasons. Um, What do you mean by opposite reasons? um, Well, The Thing is the best fucking monster movie ever made. Um, It's about paranoia and um, not being able to believe that um, the people around you are actually the people around you. Uh, that there is an all-consuming thing that only wants to destroy you, consume you, and turn you into it again with that. And Day of the Dead is, you know, w- w- what's it about? S- society is completely collapsed. Um, basically, you're trapped in a bunker with a mad scientist who's trying to get zombies to behave, a bunch of military goons who are losing their shit, and a couple of decent people trapped down there going, how the fuck do we get out of here? And is there ever going to be anything worth living of life again? And then of course they finally get out of there and find a nice Island and uh, make babies. And that's beautiful. Um, I, I like the the trifecta here and I, I'll come back to it. Uh, I think for a summary. Uh, sure. What? So let's hold that for a moment. Sure. Uh, do you see any common threads about what kind of horror you like? Uh, cannibalism, occult, metaphysical. Um, you can work out a lot of stuff there. I think that a lot of horror is either physically or at least emotionally and psychologically uh, survivalist training for, uh, how, you know, you, you go through these situations with these characters and you see how they deal with it. And you see uh, what strategies work and what don't. If this horrible thing happened to me, how would I deal with it? Mm-hmm. Which kind of le- answers the very next question, which is, do you have any idea why it is that you like those things that survivalist training is probably a, the greatest uh, summary of that? Um, I feel like for a lot of people, um, zombie fiction and film has sort of descended into this libertarian wet dream where people can just kill whoever they disagree with <laughs> um, and everybody else is, is subhuman and fuck them. Um, but at its best, it's about how do we come together and survive and and make life good again in the face of 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 the horror. I would argue that you're uh, debating two sides of a coin. Yes. For some people, the answer to that is very simple because they don't mind killing other people. And other yes, things. that's true. I think what you're saying is the other side of the coin is how do we make this work for people who do mind? Well, yeah, for people, um, who, people who value people for things other than what they can take from them. Um, 
so having narrowed in on what it is sort of you enjoy about these things or the commonality, the next question is why horror? Mm-hmm. Because couldn't you, uh, is there any, uh, any way to find these kinds of interests in things that are non horror? Absolutely. Um, were you done with the question? Yes. I, I'm sorry. I felt like, Oh, okay. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I'm going to take a, a, a multi-pronged approach to this. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. Um, for starters, I wrote a essay um, for Gauntlet magazine um, called Death's Rich Pageant, uh, Skip Inspector's Handy Dandy Splatterpunk Guide to the Horrors of Non-Horror Film. <laughs> and, um, and the thesis of this was that horror is the secret ingredient between every story you ever loved, um, which is to say that horror is conflict that, it, it, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's the engine that drives it. And as, as a case study, I... I I started with the movie Amadeus and I recounted how um, I invited some friends over for a movie night. They were not fans of horror, um, but they all agreed that Amadeus would be a cool film to watch. Realized that Amadeus is basically a deconstruction of human madness worthy of Edgar Allan Poe, wherein uh, the jealous Salieri uh, is driven to uh, murder and sabotage and every other bad thing by the genius of Mozart uh, a simple soul who just had God's music pouring out of it. And I just went from there and sort of broke it down into every category of film and identified the horror at the heart of comedies, dramas, war stories, love stories, children's movies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it was a fun piece. And Craig got his name on it because uh, Craig did not like me writing solo shit. So he added a couple of movies. Uh, <laughs> The next prong would be to analyze what happened, the the end of the horror boom in the early 90s. Horror went back to being the bastard stepchild, and horrifically uh, geared things would become urban thrillers or supernatural thrillers or some sort of other thing to keep it away from the dreaded H word. Mm. But, But what wound up happening is that horror's aesthetics leaked into every other kind of story to the point where... I remember a year not too long ago where the gnarliest horror scene that I saw all year was in a science fiction film called The Looper, where a guy is basically taken apart uh, in the in the past, in the future or something, and all of his pieces are coming up as he's trying to walk down the street mm-hmm. and shit like that. It was really, you know, it was gnarly stuff. Yeah, I mean, it got to the point where the visual in Dario Argento's Suspiria, where uh, Somebody's stabbing the young lady and you get the shot from inside her body of the knife actually piercing her heart mm-hmm. uh, became the foundation of, uh, you know, fucking CSI. Mm-hmm. And um, well, and how, how about how about we call this horror drift? <laughs> That's a very nice term. Sure. Because as, I think we talked about this earlier in the call that, you know, over the years, what used to be you can't do that now you can mm-hmm. yeah eventually you know it becomes acceptable love is the only shocking act left mm. so to um to go back to the questions about favorite movies and for favorite books as the summary for this call um mm. and you can correct me if i'm wrong but i thought that this this was a perfect summary because the um the trifecta of amelie day of the dead and the book on um the taboo of being yourself if i'm 
remembering that phrase correctly. The, the book on the uh, taboo against knowing who you are. Okay. So the, the trifecta of those two things are Aunt Emily had, you know, innocence and the little things and including the flaws. The day of the dead is the social collapse. Mm-hmm. And the book on finding yourself is, is the in-between it's here's the good. Here's the bad. How do I find myself? Well, yeah. And it, it's also, um, it's an analysis of Vedanta Hindu, um, which, uh, Alan Watts said, if religion is the opiate of the masses, then the Vedantas have the inside dope. Basically, what it comes down to is that um, the infinite all that is, um, which some people refer to by God or any other name, the one is basically your life is a game of hide and seek with God in which uh, you are, in fact, God, and so is everybody and everything else, and it's hiding that from you. And the big sin is separation from from the oneness. If we believe ourselves to be isolated, alienated bags of skin in a lonely and hostile universe, then everything is perceived as a, a horrible struggle that ends tragically in death, and um, and that's just the way it goes. But if you accept that you are like, um, as the ocean waves, uh, humanity peoples, and we are just a continuum of, of life going on and on and on, um, and not just uh, humans, but every species and every uh, a form of life and unlife forever on this planet, every other planet, and every dimension, other dimension, universe, multiverse, etc., on and on and on. Um, that is a much more comforting place to be. Well, I'm going to bring it back to Joseph Campbell uh-huh. here. Um, one of the things that I learned from him, um, he talks about uh, eternity. The, the word eternity in his definition has nothing to do with time. Uh-huh. It's uh, time in itself is there's, there's transcendence, but if there's the field of transcendence, but once you leave the field of transcendence, Mm. everything becomes a world of opposites, Mm. um, light and dark man and woman, male and female, uh, up and down, uh, and to tie into some of the other things we've talked about here, fear and desire, um, and anything that you were afraid of, you want to avoid that, but you, tend to then be attracted to whatever would be considered the opposite of that fear. Um, And, and vice versa. If you have a desire towards something, the fear that you have is losing that thing that you desire. Um, And, and so going back to what I said a minute ago about Emily day of the dead in this book on, can't remember the exact title, but it's, it's, yeah, it's again, the, the opposites of the good, the bad, and how do I find myself in the middle? Yeah, which is why I really thought that that was the great a great summary of the three points. Yeah, because uh, in in the end, it really is the thing that you hearken to, which is transcendence. Yeah, um, right. And the thing yeah, you're afraid of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I, I have finally learned how to relax, which is a not, not a thing that I understood through large chunks of my life, uh, and just you know relax yeah. behind the fact that this is how it is. This is what it is. And it doesn't mean it doesn't mean right. I don't want to make things better, and it doesn't mean that I uh, that I don't care what happens. But um, I, I do have a sort of a a Zen detachment and embrace. I I, uh, I love life, and I love creating things and. 
being involved with things and being involved with people and so forth, but I am uh, detached from the outcome, mm-hmm. which is to say, um, if I want something and I don't get it, I'm uh, my happiness or my state of being does not does not hang on that. Yes. I also like you the know? way that the, the, so the final questions here at the end of the call, it, you know, because they go over your entire life, but you may have heard me say this in a previous interview is that they're designed to either highlight things that we've already talked about or, or highlight something that we haven't talked about yet. In this case, okay. um, they highlight something that we've already talked about in that uh, the, the conversation at the end here has gone from survivalist training to transcendence, which I would say yes. really mirrors your experience from your early childhood into your teenage years. Yes. Mm, yeah, Absolutely. Going from Argentina to LSD. <laughs> yeah. Particularly. There you go. You know, I'm really enjoying this conversation because you are a couple of very smart fellas. Um, and I, you. Same to you. I, 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 I think, thank you. I, I, I like... I like the fact that I haven't had to pause and explain anything. <laughs> it's nice when you can just use the big words and not have to like sit there and search for a small word, right? Right. Well, absolutely. And also, I mean, I'm not particularly interested in talking over people's heads. Mm-hmm. To me, the, the, the soul of, of, of communication is meeting people where they are. I don't need to impress people by being highfalutin. But at the same time, um, it's a wonderful language, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's rich. No, it, I have enjoyed the call as well. It's been a, a pretty clear communication. Let's put it that way. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And, and I, I really also love the fact that uh, your show um, seems to be pretty much about exploring what this means and um, that it really is. I, yeah, I don't feel like I'm being psycholo- psychoanalyzed, but I do feel like I'm being probed um, by people who not only are really interested in the answer, but care about the answer and know that these answers um, have applications to others uh, and that maybe this might even be useful as well as ornamental. Yes. Uh, you know, the whole point, which actually we skipped talking about in at the start of this call, is that, you know, the idea is that if we talk to enough people that maybe we find some common themes or some uncommon ones, too. And, um, yeah. you know, it, it, when you're talking about data, obviously, you have to have a large enough sample size, but we're getting yes. there. I mean, we're in probably somewhere on the 45th person we've spoken to. Yeah. So. On, on on the road, absolutely. I, I've got a list of really smart, interesting motherfuckers you might want to talk with if you want to discuss that later. We yeah. would be happy to. Yeah. <laughs> uh, before we uh, do that, we could do that offline. Do you want to uh, pitch anything before we close the call? Um. Well, again, I would really like people to read my new book, Don't Push the Button. Um, I really look forward to Doppelbanger appearing at a film festival near you and me getting the financing to do the feature. Um, I would like to point out that the last book that I did before this one um, was written with my friend Heather Drain. It's called The Bizarro Encyclopedia of Film, Volume 1, in which we only talk about 1,650 films that... Only. Yeah. (laughs) that uh, talk about um, Bizarro, which is basically the fiction of the weird. Um, The books that I wrote with Cody Goodfellow um, and the short films I made with him and Andrew Cash, uh, Andrew now being uh, the head editor of um, DC's Legends of Tomorrow, 
we made some really weird films that I recommend you look up on the YouTube or the Vimeo. Um, and Andrew and I also wrote uh, and directed a segment of the movie Tales of Halloween, which as Halloween is here, uh, you'll find as one of the most popular movies on um, your Amazon Prime and yeah. uh, various other places. A times. There you go. Yeah, it, uh, it's really fun. A lo- lot of uh, really talented people. Um, I would like to recommend... Um, my most non-horror book, The Emerald Burrito of Oz, which was written with my friend Mark Leventhal, uh, former uh, songwriter for the band Green Jello, who did songs like Three Little Pigs hmm. and Nightmare yes. on Sesame Street and Eat Satan's Ham. It's a total bizarro take on The Wizard of Oz, which is already a bizarro story in which a young man from Los Angeles goes to visit his friend who moved to can who moved to Oz when he found out when she found out that the gate was real there really is an Oz it's in Kansas you could go there he goes there to visit her where she has helped form the first Mexican restaurant in Oz and is trying to stop corporate and military forces from taking over Oz and turning it into an enormous theme park um, <laughs> that <laughs> sounds awesome <laughs> it, 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 it's just the happiest happiest writing experience i've ever had um well we will be putting together a bio page for you on our horror mixes happy webpage, so we can link to whatever it is cool. you want to yeah, all those. Um, i'll get with you offline and get links cool. to all that stuff we'll yeah that see that'll teach you if to ask <laughs> yes <laughs> so uh thank you for your time sure and- thank you Thank you for all the guests out there listening. Um, please do come visit us at horrormixeshappy.com uh, or tell a friend. Actually, probably even the best thing you can do is spread the word. All right. I hope this makes yes. you happy. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm sure it will. Yes. <laughs>